Welcome back to another edition of the VH Sales Chemical Holistic Healing Hour, and we are here daily. Some of you are here via invitation where applicable. Most of you may be ubiquitous audience. All audiences are most welcome. We are growing exponentially with your help, and we are seeing a modicum of success in that regard. That's most definitely imperative and directive to yourselves, but most assuredly, like provocative guests like the Reverend Cheryl Kincaid, that's going to be here in just a second. <clears throat> Some of you may have heard her bio from the Prelude show yesterday. So I thought it'd be a good thing to do to go right back to the Podmatch arena and kind of reintroduce ourselves wherever we fall on the scale with Reverend Cheryl. So when you get there, myself to do so, Reverend Cheryl Kincaid, Reverend Cheryl Kincaid, and scrolling down the said page, I want to get to the tags that will be encompassed in our conversation today from the Podmatch arena. And those include redefining forgiveness, healing as a journey, Christian women in righteous anger, ministering to survivors of violence, survivors of incest, Christian women empowerment, faith, domestic violence, resilient survivor, trauma recovery, and then going down the page here for a second, here's the bio verbatim, thanks everybody. Reverend Cheryl Kincaid is a Presbyterian minister who studied marriage and family therapy at Bethel Seminary and has a Master of Divinity from San Francisco Theological Seminary. Reverend Kincaid is a prolific author of four books, Hearing the Gospel Through Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. I neglected in the green room. Love to have you segue into that in a moment if you'd be so kind which is the winner of the 2013 Independent Christian Publishers Illumination Award for Bible Study, the Little Clay Pot, that's Little Clay Pot, the Little Candle that was frightened of the dark, carries with a K, K-A-R-R-I-E, apostrophe S, carries thorn in a forgotten door called home. Reverend Kincaid seeks to tell the story of God's comforting, redemptive grace in the midst of an imperfect world. Reverend Cheryl Kincaid has 20 years of experience in Christian ministry, and she confesses that many of her stories were inspired from witnessing God's redemptive grace unfold in wounded Christians' lives, including her own. We're asking everyone to visit her website at Pastor Cheryl Kincaid's website to hear her sermons and hear more about her other books. And that is, I'm going to read it first, the letters R-E-V-C-H-E-R-L-C-I-K. Let me start all over again. My apologies. R-E-V-C-H-E-R-L-K-I-N-C-A-I-D.com, Reverend Cheryl Kincaid.com, Rev abbreviated. <clears throat> and when you get there to do so, to read about the Reverend Kincaid's inspiration for writing Hearing the Gospel through Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, visit her website. Once again, she has it segregated, and I'm going to reference this. Those of you that hear my shows, I'll, I'll fill her in on this at the close. Charles Dickens, I talk about him quite often at the show. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of humorous to me in that regard in a very respectful way. So anyway, dickensandchristianity.com for sure check that out i will do so myself that's dickensandchristianity.com and read about charles mcdickens faith journey and i think that's a perfect way 
to well, we want to finish up here because we want to call to that website, Reverend Sherry Kincaid, Cheryl Kincaid.com. When you get there, that site contains information on where to buy Pastor Cheryl's books, as well as the interviews and sample sermons and the sample pa- uh, Pastor Cheryl's blog. Now it would be a great possibility to segue in and let her expand upon about yourself. Thanks for your patience with myself and getting here and being here today. And please tell us about the Reverend Cheryl Kincaid. And thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. That was a lovely introduction. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm a writer and and Dickens has always enthralled me. Um, I think partly because it came from a very poor um, background. And so I resonated with the characters in his book where other people saw him as melodramatic. Um, So the book, um, I I could talk about both books, but the the most recent book is A Forgotten Door Called Home. But since we started with Dickens, we can talk about it. Please segue in whichever way in order you want to take (laughs) take it. Please do. Please do. So um, Dickens um, grew up in a home where his father was the son of a lord. So think of Downton Abbey. Um, and his, his father was a steward of a Lord is what I meant to say. So he worked in one of those big houses like Downton Abbey and the Lord of the house took pity on Charles Dickens father and indulged him, gave him gifts and educated him. So this young boy grew up to be an educated man and, and had a gift of writing like his son would have, but he had no sense of money, but he had these very high champagne tastes. And so that got him into a lot of trouble. And even though he was a generous man, he wasn't like Mr. McCarver completely in um, David Copperfield, but he was close to it. He didn't pay his bills. He couldn't handle money. Um, That put him in a debtor's prison. And because young Charles Dickens was 11 years old, he was too old to go into the debtor's prison with his family. And so he was forced to work in a bottle um, washing, a boot blacking factory. And at that time, he saw some horrible things with child labor that never left him. He also saw the pain there was um, in, in poverty and how people get stuck in it and can't get out. Um, and at that time, at the, at the same time, when he became a young man and he um, started to write for a newspaper, started to write his stories and the theme of poverty came up, there was something called the poor man's law. And the poor man's law was the law that put people away into workhouses and the church supported it. In fact, the statement, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? Um, Dickens wrote that statement in the mirror of parliament. He said that a clergy person said it and he was incensed. Now he himself knew his Bible well. Um, He studied at once to be in the Unitarian Church, but his best friend Foster said that his heart was always with the Church of England. That's where he always returned was to the Church of England. But even though he was a went to church every Sunday and there's lots of evidence he read his Bible was a man of prayer. He was incensed at Christians who wanted to create both a Sabbath law, which made it so on on the Sabbath, all the shops were closed. And if you were very wealthy, that was fine. You had a day off. If you were a servant in a big house, that's the only time that you had to go shopping (laughs) and the only time you had to recreate. And so Dickens um, wrote a Christmas carol as a slap at the church. And I contend in the book that he um, 
that he models each of the spirits after the four lessons of, of Advent. Correct. And each spirit correlates with it. And I contend it because the, the lessons of Advent are in the mouths of the spirit. Uh, and the word Ebenezer is the Hebrew word that means the Lord has brought me thus far. So um, poverty was a, a big issue growing up. It was one of the first books I had published because that, well, partly because a publisher wanted to publish it, but <laughs> partly because it was a passion of mine um, growing up in the church. I, I saw a, a switch in politics and attitudes toward the poor from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s. There was almost a disdain for the poor that I didn't think was biblical. And because I grew up in a family where a father didn't know how to pay the bills and was addicted to substances, I related to Dickens' books. So that's where hearing the gospel through Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol comes through, comes from. And it's best to order that from the publisher, Cambridge Scholars Publishing. And there's a direct link on my website, Cheryl Kincaid, RevCherylKincaid.com, and, and on DickensonChristianity.com. But the real, second real, part of my story I'm has sorry, to go ahead, finish your point. I'm sorry, finish your point. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. I, I was going to segue into the second book, but if you have a question, this would be no, a good time I to just, ask. Just very, very quickly, because of the Dickens, I love all the story, the church and all of it. I've always been fascinated by it from a kid up, the whole thing, Christmas Carol, da 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 But in business, Jacob Molly in life and in business, I, I reference that in my two business shows so often. So there's many other things that derive from that wonderful book, that wonderful story that just have extrapolated into life from the main yeah. thing about his background. I just wanted to interject that. That's all. So continue with your second book. He's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story about himself. Yeah, and he is. And before we leave off, the word Carol meant moral lesson in his Thank day. Thank you. And people would go, um, servants would go to rich people's houses and they would sing carols in response to getting gifts. Yep. And um, it was supposed to be a lesson to remind the, the rich that just as the rich left Jesus to right. sleep in a manger, we right. ought not to leave the poor out. Right. And so um, Dickens chose the term carol very specifically yep. to say this was a sermon. It's not just a sentimental Christmas card, because if, if it's a Christmas card, it's one with a really violent bite to his culture. It really is. It really is when you do deep, dig deep to find that out, to find that yeah. out. So, so continue. We could talk about Charles Dickens till three in the morning if we were allowed to do so. Continue. Continue. Well, at any rate, I'll go on to my next two books, if that's okay. But yeah, do buy the perfect. book and you can, and I, and I, I research it and talk about the poor houses and talk about Tiny Tim and Charles Dickens' own nephew who was paralyzed as well right. and how that all ties in. Correct. But the second thing I wanted to talk about was my book, um, I've Gotten Dorcod Home and Carrie's Thorn, which came from my experience of living with an abusive parent. And so we talked about the difference between forgiveness and, right. um, and denial, redefining it for Christian women. I think Christian women kind of get the shaft when they get stuck into violence. Agreed, Agreed but continue. <laughs> yeah, we're often, um, well, they're often told to submit. And even when someone says get out, they're telling them to get out of the violent situ situation after for 30 to 40 years, they've been taught to submit. So it's not an easy transition to make it, to get it, out of violence. It, it, it isn't, it isn't. I can relate, I came up in the same kind of a background, but continue, continue, oh, okay. continue. Yeah, so um, 
In my book, Carrie's Thorn, it's about two girls in foster care who empower themselves, but it takes a long time for them to empower themselves. And they find their own voice to talk about the violence. Right. But I just wanted to talk about one thing, because you mentioned in one of my hashtags, the difference between forgiveness and denial. And this do. is one of the things I really talk to people about. Um, forgiveness, when you forgive someone, you first must acknowledge that they've done something wrong. Correct. It sounds like a simple, simple thing to say, but the Bible says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That, that, so may be the, be... that may be, I'm sorry, that may be the hardest one to get the proverbial ball started, if you will. Continue, continue. Yeah. So they have to confess. Um, and so you have to admit that this person d did something wrong. And when you admit that they've done something wrong, right. comes with that um, act comes with that acknowledgement, comes the knowledge that this person is not trustworthy. Right. And you must exercise caution around, around them. That's right. And um, forgiveness is when you release the anger and bitterness to God, but it doesn't mean you stay in the situation. Correct. You do have the freedom to leave the situation, even though you forgive. You don't have to trust the violator again. That's not a part of forgiveness. Um, denial says the abuse wasn't that bad, or maybe it was deserved, or maybe you had a role in it. And in denial, you hush the voice of caution, and thus you leave the door open for further abuse. Correct. And so um, in my book, I try to get women um, to get comfortable with the idea that they can have righteous anger. The prophets had it. That's what made them rail against the Absolutely. sins of Baal Absolutely. and Balaam. Um, you can have, Jesus had righteous anger when he turned over the tables of the temple. He had um, compassion to the point of tears when he saw the people were like sheep without a shepherd and they were harassed. Jesus's heart is with the abused, not with the abuser necessarily. That's what I remind my wife every day, that Jesus said <laughs> that when, when somebody might, you know, raise their voice. Or, well, I tease a little bit. Continue, continue, yeah. Robert, continue. But um, the... The reality is, is that um, you have you have the gift of scripture to leave a violent situation and even to divorce, because in the book of Matthew, when Jesus says, what are the causes for adult for for divorce? He says adultery. And that was given because the hardness of your hearts. Correct. And I can't think of anything that has a more harder heart than um, emotional and physical violence. And so you have the ability to leave in scripture. And in this book, these girls, because they're not married, they're trying to figure out who is it safe to love because they grew up, one grew up with an addict and the other grew up with a violator. And that's what they're accustomed to. And so they're trying to learn how to create love in their own lives. Correct. And that's a tough journey. <laughs> that's a tough journey. It, it is. Yes, it, it is. is. So if you, I want your comfort zone and our business is what you would want it to be. Our business. Did you care to say how the abuse manifested itself in childhood or not necessarily? Or not well, necessarily? yeah, I was, I was abused by my dad, both okay. physically and sexually. Okay. I came to faith when I heard a voice in the middle of the night say, God is love. Right. Um, because my father called the abuse love and that, I went to church the next day and talked to a Sunday school teacher about it. And I said what's called the sinner's prayer at that time. Right. I, I accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, and my life has been born out of that. The, rea the myth that I bought into, and this is one of the reasons I wrote both these books, was I thought because I was a Christian, 
I could just um, grow up and live a normal life and abuse would never touch me again because I'd only date Christians. The reality is that I found that there are Christians that will abuse you. Um, I was lucky enough not to marry my abusers, but I was deeply in love with more than one. Um, and this, that was in my 20s and my dating years. But um, the Lord has taught me a lot. I had to redefine my, my um, responsibilities when it came to money. I hadn't been taught how to use money appropriately. <laughs> I had to redefine my sense of empowerment as a woman because not only had I been taught the abuse at home, I had, I had both at church. I had a very empowering woman who taught me to respect myself, but I also had a youth leader who believed that women should submit no matter what. Yeah. And he, he drummed that in my, in my head. Yeah. And so I had to fight those voices as I grew up. Right. Back, back in that day, I'm, I'm 69 years old. So back when divorce and all that was, oh my God, a really taboo thing, especially in Catholicism, which, hey, you know, I, I try to avow what's what and who's who. I don't make judgments, but in any event, that that was a tough one. And coming up through parochial school, through a divorce and what have you, it's, it, it was much different. And my point on that is, usually for all the wrong reasons, the man was the breadwinner and that old the hunter gatherer and all that kind of crazy stuff. And it did extrapolate into the women. For for not necessarily their own faults or anything, they weren't the money organizers, if and certainly not of their own volition, because they were a housewife. All kudos to being a housewife. But I guess to play to your point, once that situation changes for all the wrong reasons, you definitely have to in incorporate that into your repertoire. Here I am as a woman on that side of it, and maybe not having had the breadwinner element and all that kind of crazy stuff. Does that make sense, <laughs> by the way? Yeah, it does. I think that, um, and one of the things that saddened me often is that there seems to be an animosity toward women who stay in violent relationships. And women stay for all kinds of reasons. They, they stay do. for economical reasons. Women still make uh, a quarter on a dollar that men make. If you've so got true. kids to support, that's a real thing. Um, there's also revenge. The abuser will often come after you. I don't think... Um, and oftentimes I've seen therapists portray it as where the woman's as much as fault because she stays. There's lots of reasons why women have to stay. There really um, are. And I think that's what I was trying to cut to. Thank, thank you for, for synopsizing that for me. But that's exactly what I was trying to. There's, the, the, the reasons are not. We're such a judgmental society on a lot of things. That definitely being one. A divorce A is this or it had to be her fault or whatever the crazy, whatever the crazy things is a combination, especially four decades ago. It was tipped tip towards the men's side of the fence. And I don't mean that in a good way. It was always it was. the man was right, prove him wrong type of thing. If that even yes. makes any sense. Way back, way back. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I'm sorry. Was... I got a little sidetracked on that, but, okay. I, but I wanted you to f focus in on as you're doing, how hard it is for a woman that has been suppressed like that to come out and try to start on her own. Yeah, or, or, yeah. continue. I'm sorry. Continue. And empowerment's not an easy thing to find. Yeah, it really is. And, and the Christian uh, community can be very unkind in, in not excusing or forgiving women for leaving and, or even encouraging them to stay when there's no hope to stay. Um, and so the reality is, as Christians, we... Um, I wanted my voice to stand up when I wrote this, these two books to say that women 
um, deserve something better, that they can embrace righteous anger, they can embrace intolerance, and they don't have to put up with that nonsense. And, you know, our, our Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, Correct. used to be strongly Salvaic-centered in, in the sense that it was all about salvation. It was all about knowing Christ as Lord and Savior Correct. and the sacraments. Somewhere in the 60s and 70s, we started to focus on the family. And that, and I think it came out of a good place saying, well, if we keep families together, we can keep morality together. Correct. That's not true. And it's not necessarily even biblical. Salvation is still individually centered. It's about a person knowing God. A woman doesn't have Absolutely. to go through her husband to know God. Absolutely. She doesn't, and a husband doesn't have to go through his wife. Um, so the reality is, is that there's this, there's this relationship with God that's more important. And in that relationship with God, that can empower you out of violence and you can let it go. And you can, I, I think of the scripture in Matthew um, 5, where Jesus was, where Jesus, Matthew 18, where Jesus was talking about that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, for it's better to be without a hand in heaven and in the kingdom of God than to be in hell with both hands. But I know women who've been encouraged to stay in violent relationship with both hands when it's just time to cut this off and and it's time to depart from it and find something better. Sometimes when you, and, cheat, I'm sorry, come finish that point. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's, that's essentially what I meant. You can go ahead. <laughs> that, that's okay though, but when we peel back that curtain as a therapist or whatever, when that curtain gets peeled back, it's amazing, not in a good way, how much abuse in some situations they are taking just to stay in the relationship for whatever convoluted reason or whatever. How much real abuse, both physical, mental, sexual, whatever. Sometimes the complete gamut, as, as you well yes. know. So that vortex yes. of a woman coming out of that, yeah, that's pretty true. tough. That's pretty tough. It is. And, and abuse is often like the frog in the water that you heard in college. You, you put a frog in hot water, it jumps out. Correct. You put a, a frog in lukewarm water and you slowly turn up the heat, it'll cook itself. Yep. So abuse begins with, um, with putting someone down emotionally and physically, and then it goes into hits. Think of slavery and also the Holocaust. There was this middle passage in slavery. They kidnapped the slaves and then they starved them and kept them on this boat for six months till they felt like nothing. And then they were broken enough to sell into slavery. In the Holocaust, they put Jewish people on trains and they starved them exactly. and made them rest in their own, on, in their own mm -hmm. waste. And then they were fit for slaves. That happens in an abusive relationship. It's subtle. The, the tearing down, the putting down to the woman feels useless and she feels powerless and she doesn't feel like she has a way out. Can you expand a little bit upon in your experiences, personal, professional, on how during like the courtship, if you will, how things might be really great and then how that monster can come out of the blue and raise his ugly head, if you will, if that makes well, any sense. Yeah, go ahead. In my case, and also in statistically, if you come from an abusive home, you're most likely to fill at home with an abusive person. So as a child, you learn that cruel statements are just, are you're told, without, we were just joking. 
we were just pretending. And so when someone says something cruel to you, go, we go, oh, they're just joking. You're used they to didn't mean, they, didn't, they, didn't mean they didn't mean that. They didn't mean that. They didn't mean that. Yeah, they didn't mean that. And so you, you're used to pacifying. This is why it bothers me when Christians, when women finally come forward and say they've been abused, sometimes the counselor or the Christian worker will say, well, let's talk about forgiveness. No, let's not. Yeah, right. Let's talk about righteous anger first. Correct. Let's talk about intolerance. Because she's already known how to forgive. She's turned one cheek, that's been bruised. The other cheek's been bruised. She turned her back and now it's, she's been kicked in the back. Uh, uh, she, she, she knows. She's, she's had a share of turning the proverbial cheek enough times, if you will, if you will, continue. Yes. Continue. And so she, um, so let's talk about righteous anger. And Please so do. a lot of Christian women put up with a lot of nonsense they shouldn't. And sometimes in some Christian circles, the man, a lot of emphasis is put on the man that he's the spiritual leader, therefore he should mold her. Right. And that puts him in the role of an unequal relationship where he's like the daddy taking care of the little girl. And that can get into all kinds of cruel dynamics. The courtship should be a friendship where you both, where there's equity, where you're both getting to know each other to see if this works. Right. But for the survivor, most of us look for people who um, we feel at home with and make a home with. And so the survivor finds someone like their father because they feel at home there. <laughs> That's what they're used to. And one of the gifts of redemption and therapy is to teach them you don't have to be at home there. But the more the, the abuser also looks for someone whom he can abuse or she can abuse. And they, they really when they do. get into that situation, they, they, they really do. Um, the two work together to create a very unhealthy dynamic. They, they really do. And that pattern usually follows that individual through wherever they go next in a relationship or in life. Not always, not, not, not always, but usually the man, if he's of that ilk, it's a lot harder for all the wrong reasons for men to stop doing that. I'm not sure where men are at nowadays. I'm liking to think that the women are finally getting to have their voice and be listened and be more edified thanks to great work like yourselves. And, and I'm not cutting you out of this segue by any means, but at the, at the end, I love to ask all my guests about the world situation and how it can be good. And as we slowly segue out to that point, where do you think we are? We all obviously have lots of ground to go in that arena that the women are getting more heard, are becoming more aggressive in a good way to start to, hey, what are you finding? Are we, get, are we gaining ground from four decades, from four decades ago to my earlier I think point? we are. I was very encouraged by Rick Warren, um, a pastor of a megachurch who recently tweeted an apology to women for yep. trivializing them. Love it. And using scripture to do so. Love it. And he's a powerful man that people listen to, and I, I praise God that. for that. And the, those um, are the men I, that those are the men that are going to carry some thunder by saying that. Continue, continue. That's true. They're the ones that are going to carry some thunder, and people will listen to them. Um, they they had to leave their denomination because of it. There was some repercussions, but I'm still glad he made the stand. Um, I think that people are getting. I think it's one person at a time when it comes to really abuse because someone can claim to be non-sexist and open-minded. And yet he has this pattern or she has this pattern in their life and it's almost self-fulfilling. The gift of Christianity is that you can break patterns that Correct. people can change. Correct. And um, as you submit yourself to God, he remolds you. That's what the little clay pot is about in my book. Love that. He can remold you because the little clay falls apart. 
the clay falls apart in the potter's hand. It's taken from Jeremiah 18. And the potter has to make something different. I love that analogy too. I love I love that in the title itself. I love I love that title. Yeah. Continue. So um essentially what I I think that there there can be healing. Churches are talking about it more. Right. You're always going to find the hardliners that want to talk about this umbrella of authority that women should cower underneath men. And that's unfortunate. I know it's out there. I have friends that are involved with that. I really can't touch that too much because the, the defenses are so up. But I've always felt it's more a personal issue than a scriptural one. I think they're still defending their abusive father sometimes. And, and they're just saying, well, he was just trying to be a spiritual leader. And how about and so yourself? I, I'm sorry. Finish your point. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, you have to have a personal epiphany where you realize that what your parents did was wrong. It was sin. And you can do better. And you will not repeat this pattern. I swear you took the words. I swear you took the words right out of my mouth about the epiphany. And that's great. They didn't have to hear me say it. But, <laughs> but also yourself within the profession, the genre now for a few days, a couple of years, are you more readily accepted? Like not the rebel without a cause. I like to call myself James Dean, the rebel without a cause, kidding around. Are you more perceived as not necessarily, oh, watch out for her or whatever craziness goes out there if I'm making sense with that question? Are people accepting you more as, hey, that's starting to make sense type of thing? Yeah, I'm in my present denomination, which is called Eco Presbyterian, right. and it's Evangelical Covenant Order. Um, egalitarian is one of the principles they embrace, and I feel very accepted to talk awesome. about violence. Awesome, because it's there. so important. I mean, it makes your it makes it's not your battle, but it makes your battle so much easier when when you're accepted. You know, get, that certainly helps. So that's great. That accentuates getting the message out with a lot more cohesion. Yes. So I like that. Yes, I like that. So tell everybody about all your particulars so we don't leave anything out, the M and everything before we segue out. Well, and then I will have you talk about the world situation and some encouraging words, because I know you got some for us. So I'll let you take okay, that away. So, um, well, my book, my, my website you gave, you left out the why. It's C-H- Please correct me. Please correct me. Thank okay, you. It's, uh, <clears throat> it's Reverend R-E-V-C-H-E-R-Y-L. Thank you. K-I-N-C-A-I-D.com. Thank you. And Dickens and Christianity.com, and the and is A-N-D, are my two websites. You also can go on to Amazon.com and just type in Reverend Cheryl Ann Kincaid, and my books will come up. Um, I've Gotten Door Called Home is the newest one. Carrie's Thorn. Those are two books about girls aging out of foster care. Um, the Little Candle That's Frightened of the Dark is an Advent story for children. And um, The Little Clay Pot is a story based on Jeremiah 18. And Hearing the Gospel Through Dickens, A Christmas Carol is really uh, an Advent devotion, but it's also a, 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 a historical study, an argument as to why Dickens would be motivated to model each of the spirits after the seven, after the four lessons of Advent. And real quickly, before you segue, shame on me to my long departed niece, Cheryl. She'll be talking to me tonight and giving me me the Dickens pun intended for leaving off the why my apologies. So segue in, please. The world's a little bit upside down. There's a lot of theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the, precipice that we're going to churn this and make it just such a great gateway to so many things 
that are going to become revelating in the future, given the opportunity to do so. What, what would you say to folks that might have a little bit of upset, anxiety, and so forth? Thank you. Yeah. And I have my own anxiety. I, how could I you trust... not? How could you, we're humans. How could we not? Continue. How could we not? How could we not? Um, I honestly believe there is no sin that has been perpetrated against me or I have committed that can thwart the purpose of God. I pray for revival, like the first and second great awakening. You know, in the second great awakening, there's some political things that happen that people don't notice. Child labor laws came out of that, out of Methodist prayer meetings. So did suffragettes. They started to vote. Um, Susan B. Anthony was a Methodist. And it was the Methodist church that started to fight for for women's rights. Um, and so, and also the YMCA came out and the Boy Scouts of America all came out of the second great awakening. So I pray on a daily basis that something like that will happen. Not only revival, but revival with compassion. I'm troubled by how much Christianity lines up with the fascist, it seems lately, and the authoritatives. And I want us to line up with the oppressed like Jesus did. I want us to line up with those who are um, with the with the foreigner and the immigrant and the houseless person and the survivor of violence. And I think that as we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, I think that God will will stir up that spirit of compassion in us. And that's what I'm praying for. I think that's a beautiful prayer. And I think it's a beautiful place to leave this session. So to the audience, I'm going to say bye-bye for today, and please continue to join us each and every day. Continue to pay it forward with all these guests, for sure. And most assuredly, the Reverend Cheryl Kincaid, with a Y, because it's together, the network. You'd be amazed that when the numbers spread and we do things calmly, serenely, peacefully, and together, that's a deterrent that's as much of an arbitrator to Jerry Springer-ish stuff. They don't know how to react to that type of an attitude because it's the right one. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. We'll see you again tomorrow. Peace, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Thank